Welcome back to The Francisca Show, a part of JewishCoffeeHouse.com and the show in which people share their stories. This is the Survivor Special, where survivors of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse come forward to share their experiences and thereby raising awareness and preventing the likelihood of it happening again. No further research has been done into these stories. This episode is intended for mature audiences and listener discretion is advised. Names have been changed to provide some privacy to our dear guests sharing their vulnerable and personal experiences. I am Francisca, and you are listening to the No More Silence segment on The Francisca Show. Hey everyone, thanks so much for coming back and listening to this segment. Just before we start, I'd like to make a few announcements. If you would like to share your story on the No More Silence segment, please do reach out to me. My email is francisca.kay at gmail.com. You can also reach out to me through my website, which is franciscamusic.com. I'd also like to make a quick disclaimer and announcement that there is explicit language and content on this episode, so listener discretion is definitely advised. However, due to the name and the nature of this episode, I did not want to silence the guest by removing certain language or content, and I hope you appreciate that. I'd also like to mention an affiliate relationship we have with ModMouth, which is a teeth straightening company. It is owned by Jews and so much cheaper than Invisalign. So if you have been thinking about straightening your teeth, I would definitely call them for some more information and make sure to mention the Francisca Show podcast or just Francisca to get a free $50 valued whitening kit when you do sign up with them. And then after that, make sure to tell me that you called them so I can hook you up with a free gift. This is a way you can support The Francisca Show and get something done that you've always wanted to do. I will link to them in the show notes. You can also check them out on Facebook and Instagram or mod-mouth.com. Did I mention that I just did it and I'm super thrilled that I did it? Anyway, definitely check them out. And here's your show. Today on the show with us, we have Bela from Brooklyn, who is our first from from birth female survivor on this segment so thank you so much for coming on to this segment here and supporting this cause i'll give you the mic and you can start wherever you feel comfortable so my story is a unique one it's a story that i I guess it's going to bring awareness to an issue that people do not realize growing up i'm sure you yourself have heard the setting of in case of an emergency if you're ever in trouble who do you go to your parents your teacher. If you're on the street and you're lost. Okay, let's, let's backtrack. Police. This start. Yes. You, you go to the police. You're ever in trouble, you talk to a police officer. And that's the mentality we've all been brought up with, regardless of your upbringing, regardless if it's orthodox, non-orthodox, Jewish, non-Jewish. I think it's an upbringing we all have. And we're taught from a young age to trust the police officers that are there to protect us. What do you do when it's somebody who is claiming that he's a police officer who actually is the one who does the abuse to you. That left me in a very, very um, particular traumatized situation for many years, actually. It started, it happened when I was nine years old. I was walking down the street in Borough Park in front of the most busiest happening block. It was smack daylight and all of a sudden a car with sirens pulls over and starts talking to me. And it wasn't on my car, and I was nine years old, but 
he flashes what appears to be a police badge. And he tells me he's going to the 66th precinct in Borough Park and he needs directions. So, I mean, he's a police officer. Growing up, you're taught, you talk to the police. It's something you just do. You don't, like, you always go to the police for safety. So, in my mind, a police officer is a safe person to talk to. And here he stops me. So, I honestly, I turn and I say, you go this way, you go that way. I, I point him in the directions. And he's like, it's, it's very confusing for me. Do you mind getting in the car with me? I'm nine. This is a police officer. So, in my mind, he has to be a safe person to be around. Unfortunately, that was not the case. I got into his car and he unfortunately raped me in that car. I was nine. I was too young to understand what had happened to me. And I blocked out immediately what had happened. In fact, this is something I particularly remember. It was Eric Chavez when this happened. So I remember I had already showered for Chavez. And I remember coming home and not showering afterwards for Chavez again. And I remember going into Chavez feeling so physically dirty. Till today, I'm actually a neat freak because of this. Like, this is something that I'm extremely, like, I'm a neat freak because I'm, I remember going to Shabbos feeling like filth. Um, I blacked out what happened, or I, I didn't tell anyone. He threatened to kill my family. So at that point, I was like, I, I felt like I did something wrong. I didn't think, I didn't know what had happened. I knew that something happened. I couldn't process what exactly had happened. I was before puberty at this point. Um, I would just sit there and I couldn't understand what happened and he had threatened to kill my family. So I kept my mouth shut. I didn't say anything to anyone. But the one thing I do recall is I became a very violent person. Like I started acting out, like I would hit people. Something clearly changed me. And unfortunately, um, I'm going to say unfortunately because this is years ago and I'd like to say our school systems are much more in tune and aware of what science to look out for. And back in the day, they did not know what to look out for. So they assumed, oh, it was because of a certain component of my life that it had nothing to do with. And they wrote it off. They sent me to the guidance counselor. She never asked me the relevant questions. Had she asked me the relevant questions, she would have quickly come to learn the fact that I was not okay. And there was no way I would ever be okay. I carried the secret inside of me for years. I had never told a living, breathing soul. I became a very... Um, I disconnected myself from people. I pushed people away physically. Like, I did not want to be around people. I constantly just, I wanted to be left alone. I just didn't, I was abrasive. I just, and people just assumed it was, oh, she's a troubled child. Had anyone taken the time to actually sit and talk with me, they would have realized there's some serious um, underlying issues with this. So I actually proceeded to go on with my life. I was a rather troubled child, needless to say due to what I had experienced. And as I hit puberty, I started to understand what had actually happened to me. And as I entered my teenage years, I realized I was raped. This was a penis. This was not okay. But I still thought it was my fault. I, 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 I constantly blamed myself. There was never a moment where I didn't blame myself. And I never told anyone. None of my friends knew. Nobody knew. I kept it to myself. I actually had a journal in 10th grade, which I wrote in a little bit. And to discuss a violation of privacy, somebody found that journal and it was passed around the entire grade. Needless to say, a week later, I dropped out of class. I, I just was not going back to school after that because everyone was reading my personal journal. And I wasn't, I was trying to extrapolate my feelings at that point and I didn't have my feelings down pat at that point. So 
it was a matter of me like trying to soundboard and somebody really violated my privacy ultimately and it, it was guess what high school girls can be mean I guess that's the takeaway from here um I don't hold it against her today I mean I'm definitely in a better place but girls can be mean people are mean if you find something that belongs to someone else don't read it just give it back to the person is like my simple takeaway from these things um having said that so obviously I started dropping I dropped out of high school at that point and stuff really went downhill there for me I, I became a pretty rebellious abrasive angry teenager I was done with the system I was done with um I was done with it all like I just wasn't having it anymore and it came to a point where it was considered in my best interest to be moved out of my parents house not because of it, it was just it was an environment where it allowed me to deal with my issues for lack of a, actually it is issues it's not even a lack of a better term I did have issues I developed a severe set of issues having been um sexually abused I went on and that particular so I ended up hopping around doing the homeless thing for a bit um somebody took me in but that person wanted money the next it, it was a bit of a rough patch my life that year and by the grace of God a, a random stranger was asked if he can host me for like a week and at the end of the week he sits me down and you're talking about a real hot-headed angry person at this point that's that's what I was and he sits me down he's like what do you want to do with your life you're not in high school you're not doing anything what do you want to do with your life I don't know I literally said the answer to him I don't know do you want to go to school I don't know like every answer he asked me was I don't know you're 16 you have your life ahead of you he doesn't know me for beans I met him a week ago. Was he Jewish? From guy from Brooklyn, a from guy. I'm sorry, let me clarify. It was a from couple with two kids. They were from couple with two kids. They had two younger kids. And he was asked to just help out for a week. And he ended up taking me in to live with them for like a year and a half. There were some ground rules in that house. And one of the base ground rules was I have to go to therapy. Did they know your family? They did not know my family prior to this. They had very minimal contact with my parents. I got kicked out of my parents' house. Needless to say, stuff were going very sour for me. I got kicked out of their house, and I was literally living. Um, to those who know Brooklyn, I'll tell you where I was living. I was spending my days on Ocean Park around the benches. And at night, I would go to the nursing home between K&L on Coney Island Avenue, and I would sit there at night with the night guard. He would let me sit there. I was wearing, I remember this still today, I had lavender Crocs on. I had a denim skirt. I had a white, like, T-shirt. I don't, and that's all I had. Those were my possessions. I had, I don't think I had a cell phone at that point. If I had a cell phone, I had died at this point. Like, I didn't have, there was, and I picked up the phone and I called the people I felt I needed to call on. People pretty much said, go after yourself. Like, not my problem, not my circus. Um, then a family friend had taken me in and, it didn't work out because they went after my parents um, for money and it just wasn't working out because they wanted, they were in it for financial profit ultimately. And it didn't work out. And I went away for Rosh Hashanah to Baltimore actually. And I come back and they had locked me out. Like just, I was completely locked out. And once again, I'm like literally sitting on the streets. What am I going to do? I don't know. Um, my, I call my friend frantically in Baltimore. So like come back to Baltimore. I'm like, not going to do that. I don't have the money to go back to Baltimore. I, I, I need to get my stuff. So she had reached out to a rabbi in Brooklyn. And this rabbi gets involved. 
I get a call. I'm literally sitting in Dunkin' Donuts. I remember this. And they said, okay, go to the assistant's address. You're going to be there for a week. And we'll figure everything out afterwards. At that point, there was a discussion about me potentially going to Rachel's place. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yes, I have. But you could tell, talk so, about it a little bit. So Rachel's place is a shelter for young mm-hmm. young Jewish women who are from both Orthodox and non-Orthodox backgrounds who aren't able to live at home for whatever reason it may be. It can be physical abuse, it can be mental abuse, it can be sexual abuse. There's all different sorts of people in Rachel's place. Rachel's place is a non-for-profit. It's free of charge. It's a government-funded shelter. Rachel's place is an amazing place. Um, I really respect the work they do. And they played a factor into my life later on down the road. Not at this point, actually. Um, Having said that, so I was by this person for a week and there was a talk about me. Initially, the conversation was it was the sickest time, put her up for a week, we'll talk afterwards. I'm up, I'm up for a week and after the week, and this is something I found out like about two or three years ago, he was told by people, don't bother with her. She's a waste of your time. She'll be there by 20. She will die from drugs by 20. She's a waste of your time. Don't even bother trying to help her. He did not like hearing that. He tells me, he's like, I wasn't going to have it. You can tell, they could tell me from today to tomorrow to give up. I'm sorry. I saw somebody who, the entire world just gave up on you. Like the world just simply gave up on trying to help me. I wasn't a bad person. I was just a person in a bad situation and I was angry and I had many layers of anger and um, fences built up over the years and people just gave up, which was very sad. It, It hurt me to realize that I was alone in the world. Like nobody was going to look out for me. He didn't like that. And he is a very brazen person himself. And I respect him a lot. He says, not going to fly. The rabbi told him, kick her out. She will be dead by 20 out of drugs. He did not like that answer. He took it to go on and he's like, well, too bad. I'm keeping you here against everyone else as well. He proceeded to raise money to house me. He raised money for some people he knew to just simply put a roof over my head, clothing on my back. When the time came to me um, returning to high school, he paid for the tuition out of his own pocket, slash with and slash some of the people had raised the money. And it wasn't a pretty situation, but you know, it was nice to have somebody who believed in me. There was one rule in that house. I had to go to therapy. That was the only rule. He he realized there were some serious issues he was not equipped to deal with, and he just said, You're going to therapy. I went to therapy. I did not really talk much about it there. Like they tried getting me to talk about it, but I was not talk about it. I, I, I've had a very, very hard time talking about it. Um, I've attempted suicide that year, actually. Later on in that year, I did attempt to kill myself. I was taken to the hospital. Again, I didn't like they tried prying stuff out of me, but I wouldn't talk partially because I couldn't remember. And partially because I just wasn't, like, I didn't have faith in people at this point. Like, how am I supposed to have faith in anybody if people have given me so little to have faith in? Um, Later that year, I was forced to tell my mother about this. My mother had never had any inkling about what happened. I was sitting in a room. So one of the things that I was, when I was admitted to the psych ward, they have a family evaluation. I don't know if you know about that. I I would assume they have some sort of uh make sure there's a safe environment for you to go back yeah to no this, being that i was underage they had to bring my parents in so my mother had come in and 
the social worker over there had forced me to tell my mother the fact that I've been sexually abused. And till today, I will never forget my mother's look on her face. She looked dumbstruck, like she had no idea what had happened. She had no idea how this happened. Why? Did she, her first actually, her first question to me was, "Why didn't you tell me?" Because I couldn't. There was never words until I was forced to tell her about it. And as at this point, my relationship with my mother was very rocky as is because over the years, the tensions have built up. I've disconnected myself from most of society at this point. Um, and I had lived at home for about a year, so they were very rough. Again, I got out of the hospital. I proceeded to go on with my life. Didn't talk about it again. I tend to shut these off. I decided after moving out, I moved out of these people's house. I moved into my own apartment. I went for my UGD. I went to college. And amidst this process, I reached out to, I, would, I think it's called Survivors for Justice. I reached out to them and I identified myself as a survivor. And I said, I need to go to therapy because I, I need to go to a good therapist. Like I felt like I needed to get to a good therapist because there was so much for me to live for, but I didn't have the strength to make it through. So I decided I'm going to put myself into therapy. I submitted myself into a therapist. I've been with the same therapist for the past seven and a half years. Um, there's been on and off periods where there's been times where I've seen him once a week and there are points where I've seen him once a month. Um, I we, we really, there were so many other issues to peel away at that we never really spoke about the abuse ultimately. And again, every time he pried tried to open that feeling up and it just, I wouldn't talk about it. And about three years ago, I went through a, I lost a friend to suicide. She was also a survivor. And there's been a lot of, I know this is a great topic, there's been a lot of suicide, survivor related suicides. And that to me is, till today, whenever I hear about another survivor that I know quietly is, has committed suicide, or even if it's a public information that they are a survivor. Every time I hear this, and I know I'm in a good place now. I definitely do know I'm in a good place. I know I have, I have a good support system around me. I have family. I have friends who love and care about me. Every single time I hear about another survivor who lost the fight, it breaks me because it's like, this can be me. How do I know that this can't be me? And this has been a fear that's been embedded in me for years. And after losing my friend, it nearly was me. A few weeks later, I attempted suicide again. Um, I was I was admitted to the hospital this time and I went through a more of a longer, um, I was fine, like, it was just little, I broke down to the core at this point. Um, I came out of therapy, I came out of the hospital and I really, I had to take it easy when I came back into society because at this point, it's been like 22 years of build up in my life that I just held in and I've never addressed these issues. I've always just pushed it aside, locked it up and smiled and put my own brave face on. I was there and I remember I came out of the hospital. At this point, I'd taken actually a break out of therapy, which I honestly has a survivor, I think the most important thing I will share with other survivors and for parents of children who are survivors, you can be doing great. Keep up with your therapy because there are triggers along the way 
that can send you spiraling down. And I was having a fantastic year. And then there were four or five small triggers that each of them individually would have been okay. I would have been able to handle it. But compiled together, I lost my shit and I tried to kill myself. Um, I'm in a great place right now. I still see my therapist once a month just to keep myself. And I have a cell phone number. If at any point I feel like I'm not okay, I can pick up the phone and call. I, so that's my one very important tip. I, I strongly suggest to anyone, like if you're in therapy and you're leaving, make sure you just go in for, you know, you take your car in every few months to get yourself your, your brakes checked and all that. You got to check your emotional brakes, I think, compared like that. So I went back to therapy and this time I come in and he sits me down. I was like, okay, I know you don't want to talk about it, but you have to tell me. And I literally choked up. I started talking and I couldn't talk. And we're sitting there for an hour and he's trying to get me to say the basic framework of what had happened. And I refused to talk. Like there was nothing you can get me to do to talk. I ended up going home from therapy that day and I wrote it down on a piece of paper. For the first time in my life, I actually wrote down what had happened. Details, clear details. You said you blocked it out when you were nine. So at puberty, that's when everything started coming back, the memories? Like 12 years old, 13? So at puberty, like 12, 13, I would say even 14 because I grew up in a very isolated environment where I didn't have access to understanding the world per se. Um, I would say I started to understand what had happened to me, but I constantly still blamed myself throughout the process. I've blamed myself why did I listen to him? Why did I get into his car? And these questions ring in my head every now and then. So I guess it wasn't like a memory like you forgot. It was just like you dismiss. I'm just trying to understand more of the whole you knowing and actively keeping sure. it a secret. You understanding what happened versus. So when it happened at night, I understood something happened. I didn't understand what had happened. I remember the, the, if I had to put my memory at nine, it would be that I was, I felt very dirty. I felt like something physically and emotionally dirty. So I, I, that was the description I would use to describe how I felt. Um, that was when I was nine. When I was a teenager, I started to understand body anatomy as in this was a, this was a penis. He had sex with me. Not okay. Um, again, still, I constantly blame myself at 17. I kind of came out saying, yeah, I was like, I, I didn't want to talk about it. I was like, yeah, someone raped me. Like that was it. And I never said anything about it again. Um, apparently according to psychology, I am a textbook case of a survivor who has never dealt with her issues because apparently survivors who don't deal with their issues at 21 or at 22, their issues tend to implode. Like that's like people who have pushed aside these issues for so long, they implode at 22. I turned 21 three and a half weeks. I'm sorry, I turned 22 three and a half weeks before I was admitted into the hospital. Textbook case. And it's a number to be aware of. And it's a sad, unfortunate thing that it came down to that. So I wrote down what had happened and I gave it to my therapist. And I literally, as he read it, I turned away. I did not want him to see me. I just didn't want him to see me because I felt so physically horrible. Um, on an impulse, like two, three days later, I called my mom. I'm like, hey, mom, 
Here's the deal. I'm going to tell you what happened to me. And you can listen to this, but here's the deal. You can never ask me any questions. Read the email. Never ask me any questions. Do you want it or not? That's how I proposed it to her. I'm going to read her email response back because I think it's the most beautiful response I've ever gotten in my life. And I have this email. Like whenever I need to pick me up, this is my email. Dearest Bela, I'm so sorry that you're going through all this pain. I'm so sorry that you're carrying this inside you for so long. I'm so sorry that this happened to you. I'm so sorry that you were afraid to tell me. I'm so sorry that I wasn't able to help you with this earlier. I love you no matter what. I love you for who you are. I am so proud of you for going forward. I am so proud of you for all your effort you put into yourself. I am so proud of you that you are on the road to recovery, strength, and inner peace. Love, Mommy. I bawled when I got that email. I cried. Very much so. We've never spoken about it since. It's just like an unspoken topic between me and my mother, but that email showed me that she wasn't angry at me. In my mind, growing up, my mother would be furious. I got into a car of a stranger. How would she not be angry at me? Don't get into, everyone grows up learning. Don't get into a stranger's car. Don't get into a stranger's car. And I was always scared of telling my mother because she would be angry and she would just never talk to me again. I got a very different response than I had expected from my mother and one that I'm grateful for. I wish other survivors have as a supportive of a mother as I have, despite our challenges. Yes, we do have our challenges. We've both worked on ourselves significantly. Um, both of us have been in and out of therapy um, on our own levels and paces. Um, and I'd like to say I do consider myself connected to my mother this point. And it's not saying that this road has been easy. It's definitely been a hard challenge to grow, but I know I have a very supportive mother standing on my side. And this is an email I keep whenever I have something that can be a trigger to me that happens. It's like seeing something or for me particularly, I cannot walk down that block. I cannot walk down that particular block. If I ever walk down that block, I get pretty triggered. And I try not, I don't pass that block, but if I unintentionally pass this block, I tend to refer back to this email. It just makes me remember that I'm loved and it helps me to forgive myself. Can I ask you what other triggers you have? Like you said, you had four or five other triggers that year? Yes. So I had triggers. There were The triggers were all, um, I had a suicide. My friend had killed herself. Um, another trigger I had is I, I was just dealing with a very abusive year that year. And I was under a lot of stress at that point. Like I, I had been really at work. I went through a very, very abusive period at that point. So that put a lot of stress on me. Um, there was also an individual who um, lied to me. I, Someone who I was involved with, um, we had hooked up for a lack of better terms. Sorry, I don't know what crowd listens to this. Yes, I was involved with somebody who lied to me about something very important. So that really hurt me on an emotional level. There are challenges. I, I like to say all this has pushed me as an individual to be my best self, but it's also given me a very strong art. Um, I have a great professional career, but when it comes to dating, I don't date. 
I, I just don't even date because as much as I'm forgiving myself for what had happened, I also have this mentality in my head of who the hell is going to want to marry me? I'm damaged goods. And I know I have so much to offer as a person, as an individual. I consider myself to be a kind person, a compassionate person, a person who helps people. But at the end of the day, I don't think because I don't think I bring too much garbage to the table. I, I, I carry too much baggage and I feel like who's going to want to marry me with all this baggage? It's it's tough. It's It's a reality. I think I'm scared to face the truth of having to explain to potentially a husband that there are going to be times where I don't want to have sex with you because I am so triggered right now. Um, it can be something small that can offset me. Um, I'll give you an example. I was dating somebody while the, I don't know if you've been following the news. There was somebody in Brooklyn who was involved in the political scene, a from guy, and he was arrested for sexual abuse. And I literally destroyed that relationship because I just got so triggered and I just couldn't, I pushed this guy away and I, I wasn't ready to deal with it. And it's something that constantly overtakes me. There are days where I get up and I say, I'm ready to give up. I can't deal with this. I'm not good enough. Um, everything, every, all this insecurities are my fault. I, there are days I wake up like that. That it's it's hard. It's a very hard reality. It's uh, it's two steps forward, one step back, and I think it's something I deal with every day. Um, I've become over the years a bit more like people I'm close with know something happened. I don't go into details. I don't tend to share that. So first of all, I would like to acknowledge the fact that professionally that you have continued and picked yourself up and sounds like the confidence thing you definitely have it when it comes to your work so there is hope that in your personal life that you will find the strength or opportunity to see the self-worth that you have and i've heard i'm it's not a new thing that i'm hearing like who's gonna want to marry me with this baggage I, i know people say that about therapy when i'm a big therapy person in general the way i view things is if something's not working, you go and you fix it. So if your ear's hurting you, you go to the doctor. If your heart's hurting you or your mind's hurting you or you're, you have anxiety or whatever you're dealing with, you go and you fix it. You deal with it while you want to live with that for the rest of your life. Meaning my whole perspective is nothing has to be majorly wrong with you for you to try to improve your life. That's my motto. And then when people are like, but who's going to want to date me if I go to therapy? Well, I tell them, you wouldn't want to date anyone who hasn't gone to therapy either, because if they don't understand that or believe in that, then how are you going to work on your relationship when life comes up and when you have to deal with something and they're not open to it because they have that stigma or they're stigmatized toward therapy. So while you're speaking on, you brought up a great point. Something's wrong with the doctor. I'm going to make up the concept of antidepressants here, actually, because it's a very iffy conversation. Um, I am on antidepressants. I do take a very light dosage after everything had happened the second time around. I definitely needed some medication to get back onto track into my life. And I'm not heavily addicted to this. I'm on a very low dosage. I'm going to say something right now. There is nothing wrong with taking an antidepressant. It's 
You have a headache, you take Tylenol. You get your tooth pulled, they give you Oxy. What's wrong with taking antidepressants? And there's a stigma. And people think, you know something? I'll leave it. Since we're talking to our front crowd, my psychiatrist has told me the following. He has his Qasidish patients, specifically. They cannot be off antidepressants because they're constantly either pregnant or in postpartum. And there is postpartum is an issue. And I know we're swinging off tangents here, but postpartum is an issue that's real. And he keeps his patients on antidepressants all the time. I thank God have been transitioning myself. I've lowered my dosages. I'm on a very minimal dose because if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of mentality. But there is a stigma around taking medications. There is nothing wrong with taking medications. And I wish people would understand that. Yeah. But my other point was, you might want to look for someone who has their own baggage. It does not need to be violence or abuse. It could be all kinds of different baggage that brings that depth and understanding to a person who would also view you on a pedestal just like you would view them and not that looking down, which people with stigmas, and I'm not, I'm saying they look down because that's the natural way everyone grows up with. Oh, anyone's not like you, you look down at them or, I mean, we don't tell them, oh, look up at people. (laughs) So not that there's anything lower down if anyone's on medication or dealing with anything. I think that brings depth to a person and you looking for someone who has that depth makes it more of unthreatening and I'm just bringing this up not because I'm trying to coach you or train you or change anything about you. It's because I think this is an important issue to bring up, especially because we're talking about therapy and it's not just for somebody who had a traumatic event in their life. I think therapy enhances everyone's life and in my family it's almost like, oh, when when am I old enough to start therapy? Like, when do I qualify to start, you know, having a professional help me, as my grandmother says, instead of going to school or in addition to going to school, I'd like to study myself. And that's what you do with a therapist. You go and you become an expert in yourself. And why wouldn't you want to spend money or the time becoming an expert with yourself? You're going to be living with yourself for the rest of your life. So that that's my perspective, just to destigmatize this. Very true. I, I will tell you this, I've funneled thousands of thousands of dollars into therapy and there is not a single regret because I've come out, I'm on, the, I'm, on, I'm at the finish line. We're at the 11th mile, at the 11th hour, at the 59th minute and at this point it's just keeping up. Um, and what you said about dating somebody with experience, I personally find divorce guys, obviously divorced with like a good reason, not because something on their part, like just, they weren't compatible. That's a very reasonable reason to get divorced. Um, I tend to find divorce guys are, when it comes to dating divorce guys, they have more of an understanding of life. So I do agree with what you're saying. Yeah. I wanted to bring up another issue, and I don't know if you're comfortable talking about it or if, if I'm overstepping. What I've heard or learned about suicide and attempt on suicide, and I, I, I feel very uncomfortable bringing this up because I feel like I don't get to talk about this and maybe it should be hush hush, but I feel like this is the platform to talk about it. So I'm going to ask because I'm truly curious. So the stats are women are more likely to attempt, men are more likely, less likely to do it, but if they do it, they succeed. Something like women have higher attempts at suicide, male 
are higher attempts at successful suicide. Okay, so I, I don't know the stats for sure, but this is the idea. And my question is, when you were attempting your suicide and you had two, were they a cry for help or was it a failed attempt at death? The second level to this question, was your friend also a cry for help and that was a mistake? Like, was it overdosed? on drugs and she didn't realize she was killing herself and she died because that happens a lot. I mean, subconsciously, obviously, there's the self-harm going on and you're aware that it's happening and you don't care if it happens. And then there is jumping off a bridge and I don't want details of how it happened unless you want to specifically talk about it. But my question is, were your experiences cry for help versus this is the end? So the first one I would definitely put closer to a cry for help. It was a point of I was hurt in life. I was very hurt. I I needed help and I don't know. No one seemed to care about me. So that was definitely more I'd say. I was younger. I was more of a cry for help. The second one, I'd been struggling throughout the year already just emotionally. Like I had a very stressful year and I started feeling numb. And around the time that my friend had committed suicide, she actually did jump off a bridge. So unfortunately, it was intentional. She just to bring some awareness between suicide, she jumped off because of postpartum. She had some issues in her life. Yes, she was a survivor, but ultimately it was the postpartum combined with all of her prior life experiences that cost her her life. She left behind a child and a husband. It was very unfortunate. And I was in a very downward spiral at this point already, as is. I was the most Functional, non-functioning alcoholic, I can say, because I was literally coming home, blacking out drunk. I've ended up in bars quite a few times, just literally stumbling out because I couldn't even walk. I don't know how I got home. There are nights I have no idea how I got home. There are nights I had to come and literally just put like an IV through me to flush me out because I was out of control and I was at a point where I was just done. I, I, I was done, beyond done, beyond done. I, I didn't want to live. And I went to the hospital saying, help me. And they turned me away because I looked fine. I just needed some Xanax or I needed to calm down. I reached out to, I went into the hospital. I called my therapist up. I said, I'm admitting myself. I don't feel, I said, I told him I was sitting on the floor and I was shaking. And he said to me, go to the hospital right now. I'd reached out to him. I hadn't spoken to him in quite a few months at this point. Go to the hospital right now. I went to the hospital and... I was talking to them and they sent me away, which is a very terrifying reality because I went into the hospital and I said, help me. And I was turned away. The hospital clearly didn't feel like I was a person who needs help. I don't know. Did I have to like slip my wrists in order to come in and get the help? I, I was never a, a slicer. So I, I would not really want to find out. The next day I said, I'm done. And I walked towards the bridge and I was at the bridge. And I was ready to do it, but someone pulled me off. And I got the help I needed. I don't know how we wrap up from such a cliffhanger here. The one thing I would say um, to other survivors out there, you're not alone. There are so many. I'm giving you a virtual hug. I really am giving you a virtual hug. And something to be mindful of is due to the triggers that you are dealing with right now, as a survivor, it's important to have your spouse in therapy with you to understand in a healthy function, in a healthy manner. I intend 
to break it to my spouse when I find him. And through therapy, I intend to sit in a therapist's office and have a conversation with my therapist and my spouse because I want to do it that way. And there needs to be um, constant monitoring. There has to be monitoring because there are going to be a lot of things that trigger you. Um, I know from people who have kids that they're very traumatized by their children who are survivors. Their children hitting the ages that they are they were when they got abused is a very triggering fact for them. Um, I also, as a, especially as I talk about female autonomy, postpartum alone is very high risk. Most women are at risk for postpartum. A survivor having postpartum can be detrimental, as we saw, unfortunately, in the case of my friend. We actually did an episode for Women's Mental Health Week, and we spoke about postpartum depression and bringing awareness to that because it's not in our control and emotions or hormones are so imbalanced. I'll give you an example. You're driving your car and all of a sudden you get a flat. Is it your fault you got a flat? It happens. The car couldn't hold out anymore on you. Great example. So what are you looking in your future? What are your reflections? Are there any parting things you would like to tell yourself or anyone listening? You're not at fault. No matter what anyone tells you, no matter how much they try to silence you and shut you down, it's not your fault. It's something I wish somebody told you me years ago. Nothing's wrong with me. Something wrong was done to me. And that was something I had to learn to differentiate as an adult. And it was a very hard area of my life to differentiate because understanding that I wasn't the bad person here. I was the victim. And I don't like using the word victim a lot. Actually, I'm the survivor. I am a survivor. I don't look at myself as a victim anymore. I am the individual who was... I was... I was prey to a fox and I wish somebody would have told me, I mean, today's days, I think there was so much more awareness than when I was in school 15, 20 years ago. Um, There's definitely the awareness out there because people, schools are more aware of it. There is organizations coming into schools with curriculum. There's Amundim, there's JCW. There are these organizations that are providing tools to parents when there is, um, there was pretty recently, there was a principal out in Bergen, New Jersey that was arrested. The school killed it there. They killed it there with they bought therapists and right away to deal with the students. And there's that awareness that you didn't have 10 years ago. 10 years ago, you would not see this in a school setting. 10 years ago, parents did not know in the ultra-Orthodox community what to look out for as a parent. What are the signs I look for, for as my child? Because I'm sure if my mother would have known the signs, or if anyone in my school had been prepared to know the signs, I don't blame the school. I blame the fact that the system which was, I don't blame people. But if I'd like to say something is, we are in a much better way where the system and society is getting more aware. We are starting to have the uncomfortable conversations where we're talking about the fact that yes, people do bad things. And yes, we will hold you accountable. And yes, we will stand up against these people. So that's my takeaway. I wish other people, I wish I had this message when I was nine. Someone told me this. How much would you say your pain was attributed or your suffering to the trauma itself versus the years of keeping it bottled in and not dealing with it? So it's an interesting component. I I realized I did not mention this earlier in the segment. I right away realized something bad happened, as I mentioned. Um, So I was pretty angry right away. I remember I was nine years old and I went into my parents. I I started going into the rooms on Shabbos and turning lights on and off just to say, screw you, God. Like, screw you, Hashem. I'm getting even with you for this. It was a nine-year-old mentality. I, a child's mentality. I'm, I'd say the actual trauma itself, I'd say, I'd put it at 50-50 because 
as I'm getting older, there are small details that I can remember that paralyze me, like small details. Like right now, and about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I remember the exact kind of car it was. I will not get into such a car. I, every time I see such a car, I literally just hold tight because I cannot look at that kind of car anymore. There are the smallest things. Like, unfortunately, I can't ban all the cars in the city. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we end? Oh, I forgot something very important. There's a book I've read that I recommend survivors reading. It's called The Courage to Heal, a guide for women survivors of child sexual abuse by Ellen Bass and Laura Davis. I got this on Amazon. It's about 20 bucks. It's definitely a book that it's a hard read for a survivor to read, but it's definitely a powerful read for survivors of childhood sexual abuse. I'd like to thank you very much, Bela, for coming onto the show, for being vulnerable with us, especially after saying for so many years you didn't want to talk about it and you didn't want to go there. You started the whole episode with this is what happened to me and you said those words. So clearly you've come a long way and you view yourself as a survivor, not a victim. You're saying all the things that reflect work, healing, and I really wish you the best of luck, Hatzlacha, in finding what you're looking for in life, finding that light and shining your light because you have a bright one, shining it on everyone else who needs it. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. If you would like to write in or request to be on the show, please do so by emailing me at franciscak at gmail.com. That's F-R-A-N-C-I-S-K-A-K-A-Y at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and go to iTunes and leave us a good review. With your review, the show will rank higher and help others discover the show. This Francisca Show podcast will be hosting a No More Silence special on abuse once a month. However, do check in on other weeks for the interviews with female Jewish creatives. See you next time.